perfectly reasonable, I think, for someone to be able to say, I absolutely think that someone has a right to confront their accuser, to speak up, to be heard, to have their claim treated seriously, to be investigated properly. I also think someone who's been accused of wrongdoing has a right to defend themselves. They have a right to due process. Those aren't controversial thoughts. You can think both things at the same time and still be very supportive of me too. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Robin Doolittle. Robin is one of Canada's foremost investigative journalists, working first at the Toronto Star and now at the Globe and Mail on stories that have shaken political foundations in Toronto across the country. We're especially happy to have Robin with us today because she was the very first winner of the Kobo Emerging Writers Prize for Nonfiction for her book Crazy Town about Toronto's narcotically enhanced mayor Rob Ford. As we do here at Kobo in Conversation, I'll be asking her about her reading and writing life the books that she read as she was becoming a reader and a writer, and what she was reading while working on her most recent book. And we'll spend most of our time talking about that most recent book, Had It Coming, What's Fair in the Age of Me Too. Robin Doolittle, welcome to Kobo. Thanks for having me. In an age where journalistic success is often measured in page views and retweets, you're a practitioner of investigative journalism, a craft that requires time and patience and resources and works over a much longer period of time in a much longer form. We'll talk about the subject matter of your series in a minute, but I'd love you to take stock of what it means to be an investigative journalist right now in a world of shorter attention spans and thinner newspapers. Hmm. I mean, in some ways, this is the golden age of investigative journalism. I mean, you are seeing news outlets really bolster this type of work. I think that as the footprint shrinks, everyone is trying to distinguish themselves. And this is, you know, really different from when, even when I started in my career. So I've been a, you know, professional journalist now like 12 or 13 years. I graduated from Ryerson's J School in 2006. And there was definitely a period where it was like, just going for clicks. We want the silly stories or they weren't necessarily valuing what we would call enterprise reporting, mm -hmm. off agenda reporting. So on that sense, it's amazing. And on the other sense, I work at the Globe and Mail, one of the few outlets that really has true investigative muscle. And I feel a deep pressure to use the resources that I have wisely. And have your successes in following these stories in the past given you more license or greater permission to go farther and dig deeper? Oh, sure. I remember being a really young journalist and, and hearing investigative reporters talk to us about, you know, how do you get into this line of reporting? You don't show up when you're 
25 and say, hi, boss, can I have a year and a half to go investigate? I'm ready. Put me in coach. I'm ready. No, like you build up that they trust you to do that. So the Rob Ford investigation, which was obviously the foundation for my first book um, and my first time that I was in this beautiful building of yours, I did that on, on my own time, by and large, while working at the Toronto Star and covering the City Hall beat. You know, the day-ins and day-outs of City Hall and then in your kind of your evenings, your weekends, your spare minutes here and there, you're chipping away at this investigation. I'm now an investigative reporter at the Globe and Mail and I did this big series Unfounded which is the jumping off point for my new book which took 20 months and certainly my editors are now that you know they they trust my gut and my news judgment and I do have that incredible rope which is a blessing and a curse <laughs> but yeah it is such a privilege this job that I have both books Crazy Town and Had It Coming flow from series that you wrote for daily newspapers. What makes a series of stories worth putting into a book versus just keeping as a series of articles? Are there things that a book allows you to write that you can't do in daily journalism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both books are really good examples of that. And I've written many stories that I'm very proud of that wouldn't make good books. Rob Ford, I think what was great about Crazy Town as a book was it allowed me to take people behind the scenes of the reporting. And that really became apparent to me uh, in the wake of the newspaper series that people really did not have an understanding of how journalists do their job. I mean, there was a poll after the Toronto Star reported on the crack tape, the infamous video of the late mayor of Toronto smoking crack cocaine or what looked like crack cocaine, that half the city thought it was made up. So going into the nitty-gritty of journalism and kind of blowing out the larger consequence, this isn't just some crazy tabloid story, this is an elected official with, you know, alleged gang members who are allegedly smuggling guns into the city. Like, it allows you to unpack all of that. With my latest book, I wasn't initially thinking of it as a book when I finished my Unfounded series at The Globe because the Unfounded series, this was my investigation into how police handle sex assault, it was something like 60,000 words, the whole thing. Like, it was a book on its own. But then Me Too happened, and it was like there was just so much more to say. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to take all that I'd learned while doing my Unfounded reporting, not just about the statistics and the criminal justice system, but about what I'd learned about rape myths and stereotypes and how the brain reacts to trauma and the research that academics have done into consent and answer these big questions in this movement, like what do we do with people who have committed harm? What about the redemption question? What about due process? What about this obsession with false allegations? And unpack what is fair in the age of Me Too. And I want to get to all of that in a second. <laughs> that was a that, lot. That was no, a lot to no, lay on you. No, but. But, it, but it did also form kind of the agenda for the rest of our conversation, which is good. I want to go back to the beginning of the unfounded investigation mm -hmm. for you and talk a little bit about what triggered that investigation. What made you decide to go on this really odyssey of mm -hmm. fact finding? So it was 2015 and I had been at the Globe for a year. I'd done, you know, a few things, including this really fun story about online gambling in Prince Edward Island that I loved, but that it wasn't, you know, I think I spent a couple months on it, something more to sink my teeth into. And my editors were saying, 
I know you're you're used to being a daily reporter at City Hall, but you know you've been here a year now. Like, take the time. Don't be afraid to like disappear for a year, maybe longer. This is words newspaper journalists don't hear anymore. Was, that's the Willy Wonka <laughs> golden ticket of, exactly. uh, of uh, editorial direction. Like to feel this weight, though, it's like, oh my God, I have this leeway and this resources behind me, and what am I going to do with it? It has to be important and. At the time, the city and even perhaps the country was just really obsessed with the Gian Gomeshi trial. And everywhere I went, I kept kind of getting into the same conversation with people that the criminal justice system was rigged against sexual assault complainants. And it seemed to me, well, that's a statement that certainly feels true, but I wonder if it is true. And if it is, can you prove it? And that was the genesis of Unfounded. And what did you find when you flipped over that rock. So first, how do you go about proving something like that? And so I did what I always do when I'm starting something is I read. And I came across a story that mentioned this thing called unfounded, unfounded rates. I'd never heard of this before. And I'd been a police reporter for three or four years at the Star. And it's essentially when police finish an investigation, they stamp it with a code to signify for statistical purposes how that investigation ended. And one of those codes means, I don't think that this allegation is true. So it's someone says, I was raped, the police officer does an investigation, no, you were not raped. It's not that I couldn't find a suspect, it's not that there wasn't enough evidence to lay a charge, this is an invalid allegation. That's what unfounded is. And this seems like, oh, this is a great way to quantify this question. And so we collected unfounded stats because they're not public. You have to do them individually from 873 police jurisdictions in this country for a sexual assault as well as physical assault. And what we found was one in five sexual assaults were being dismissed as false or baseless. That's almost twice as many as regular common assault. And it's drastically more than other criminal offenses, which is in the low single digits. And then in addition to that, I looked at 54 specific cases of sexual assault and why they were kind of breaking down when, when being investigated. And what I found is that Across the board, police were just skipping basic investigative steps, like closing cases before they'd interviewed witnesses, not looking for a suspect, not sending evidence off for forensic testing, not collecting surveillance footage, just basic stuff. And why would that be happening? The only explanation that's logical is that officers were falling victim to rape myths and stereotypes, and these allegations weren't as appearing as serious to them or worthy of investigative muscle. One of the things that amazed me in reading your process and putting that together was the coordinated response by police forces, that they were actively working together to keep you from getting the word out about this. That is one of my favorite stories in my Unfounded series. So if there's any journalism students listening, my favorite trick is so there's this thing called freedom of information request you can use to collect public documents that aren't otherwise accessible. And you had to do hundreds of Hundreds things. and hundreds of them. But I often file freedom of information requests for records related to my requests. So either, either my FOI request or if there's a media request you send through to the spokespeople. And what happened is I was in the stage of my investigation where, you, where I call them like my due diligence emails. I email everyone to let them know what my story is about, give them an opportunity to respond to specific allegations. I also included a set of questions just to get, help me get an understanding of the landscape across all these different police jurisdictions. You know, do you have a sex assault unit? Is there any specialized training? Just what are your numbers like? Like basic stuff like that. 
and I received something like 10 of the exact same responses, refusing to comment. Like word for word. Word for word. And it was just so silly of them because if they just would have written no comment, I would not have connected that they had coordinated this. But because they were exactly the same, I was like, oh, well, this is rich. Like, they've obviously planned this. And I filed FOIs with various police services that responded in this way and found hundreds of pages of conversations of police services across the country debating whether to participate or how to participate in the Globe's investigation. And I found, you know, one officer in particular who was a spokesperson who was compensated extremely well, something like $150,000 a year salary by taxpayers to communicate with the public saying that she didn't think it was worthwhile to comment on this story. And then they were all kind of bemoaning that this is, you know, it's so irritating when journalists just want to write negative pieces. And it spoke volumes to me because it showed how seriously they took what the Globe was finding is that one in five cases were being erased from the public record and that cases were systemically being mismanaged. So that was, I think, really illuminating. And it made the next part all the more shocking that after the series ran, within a week, police services across the country were pledging to do better, that they did get it once it was out there in black and white. And it was one of those great, rare journalistic events that turned into political and policy change. Government pledged $100 million to fight gender-based violence. StatsCan changed the way that it was going to report the number of unfounded decisions. Is that the kind of response that a journalist lives for and hopes for when they, when they write something like this? Oh, yeah. If I retire and this is the most important story I've ever done, I will be very proud. Like, this is, this was a unicorn story, but it partly speaks to, though, like, what I get into in my book, that the culture was primed for this. If my unfounded investigation had landed 10 years ago, I'm not sure there would have been as much change because... And this is one of the things I really try to explore in the book is sometimes we fall into this trap of talking about Me Too like it dropped out of the sky in October 2017 with Harvey Weinstein. But really the march toward this moment has been very long. I started working on Unfounded because of the Gian Gomeshi story, which was in 2014 that it started. And it started within a week or two of the Bill Cosby scandal unfolding. So the culture was primed for this moment and was ready to demand action. And that's really, I think, what happened here with Unfounded. I got that the investigation came together perfectly as a piece of journalism, and it landed at a time when the public was ready for it. So let's turn to the book, which begins in a lot of ways where the series ends, which pulls from that momentum. And in some ways, the first part of it talks about those precursor events that Mm -hmm. have led up to Me Too. The title is especially good in that it encapsulates that sense of thinking that's underpinned how men have gotten away with sexual assault for as long as they have. You begin with the Kobe Bryant case, where... The NBA superstar was accused of forcing sex on a young woman. And you confront your own initial reactions to that story, that feeling of, well, what did she expect going into his hotel room? For you, where did that notion come from? That idea that the victim should have done a better job of taking care of herself? Yeah, I spend so much of the book asking people to think about rape myths and stereotypes and to confront their own misconceptions 
that they may not even realize that they have. And so I felt the only fair place to start this book was by dealing with my own and something that I, I wasn't even necessarily aware of. And that's what's so scary about rape culture is that it's so woven into the way that we live that we don't see it. So with Kobe Bryant, as you mentioned, this is the famous basketball player who was accused of raping a 19-year-old in a hotel room in, in Colorado in 2003. And I came across this case again when I was researching this book. And I remembered hearing about it. I was 18 at the time. And I remembered thinking, oh, like, what did that girl think going to a hotel room with an NBA player at night? Like, I wasn't even necessarily thinking she was making it up. I was blaming her in some way. And why was that my reaction? This girl was practically my age, and she worked at a hotel. I worked at a hotel in high school. She was criticized for a variety of reasons in the media, including that she'd taken this photo with her friends at prom where she hiked her skirt up to show a garter belt. My friends and I had taken that exact same photo, yet I felt no connection with this woman. I, I viewed myself as very separate, like, you know, I'm not one of those girls. And why was that my reaction? There was a whole bunch of really problematic things with that case, including the fact that there was a lot of credible physical evidence, including blood on Kobe Bryant's shirt afterwards, that pointed to the fact that this was a very credible allegation. And yet she was just ripped apart in the media. Uh, the headline in the Los Angeles Times was something like, Kobe Bryant's accuser is an emotional party girl. Very problematic stuff. And, and that is what rape culture is. And in a lot of ways, the book is an exploration of the different concepts that underpin those rape myths and rape culture, blaming the victims, slut-shaming, the tendency to believe the perpetrator or at least want his life not to be mm -hmm. impacted. And yet one of the things that you, you, know, you share at the, at the very beginning of the book is that all of these things are going on and this culture exists. And we have a kind of a general tendency to say, well, you know, if we made the laws better, we could probably mm -hmm. fix that. And you highlight that at least in Canada, laws aren't the problem. Yeah, this is something that really surprised me when I started to learn about this area. Canada has some of the best laws in the entire world when it comes to protecting sexual assault complainants and strengthening the ability of a Crown prosecutor to, to take these cases on. We have laws where, you know, it's an affirmative consent standard. It's not about saying no, it's about indicating yes. So someone doesn't need to say no for it to be sexual assault. We have case law that demands that if a complainant doesn't report right away, they should not be treated with suspicion. If a complainant doesn't scream for help or, you know, fight back, she should not be treated with suspicion. She or he should not be treated with suspicion. We have laws that prevent someone's sexual history from being, you know, willy-nilly brought up in court. And this is to get away from that rape myth that, well, if someone's had sex before, they're more likely to have sex again. These are all these, these types of laws that really strengthen the case. But the problem is that they're not being enforced. And why is that? That's these rape myths and stereotypes. If you have these biases inside of you, whether you're a police officer, the gatekeeper of the justice system, or a judge or a jury, the laws are useless. Gian Gameshi figures prominently at the beginning of the book as one of the first pushes in the avalanche of Me Too. He calls himself the Me Too pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> and you describe that trial 
kind of in terms of right problem, wrong case. So why was that so unsatisfying for everyone who was watching those events and hoping that this would be the, the match that would light the fire? I come to Giangomeshi a few times in the book because it is so pivotal especially in Canada. This was the first real signs of this cultural reckoning. And it really felt at the time like everyone was saying, okay, if Gian Gomeshi is found guilty, then the system works. And if he's let off, then it needs to be blown up. And it almost like didn't matter the facts of the case or how that played out. Because the reality is, and this is a controversial statement for some, but he should not have been found guilty based on how that trial went down. The trial was a train wreck. In fact, we don't want to live in a country where Gian Gomeshi is found guilty based on how that trial unfolded. I interview one of the women, the complainants, and she understands that it was a disaster. And it more, I think, just underpinned this, this bigger problem when we're talking about these issues, this obsession we have with the justice system. The laws are good. The courts are what they are. They're never gonna be perfect. If we obsess about dealing with the issues that have come up with Me Too in purely the legal sense, we're not going to get anywhere. That's where we really need to shift and where I argue we shift to focusing on the ethical and the moral behavior. One of the cases I deal with in the book and write about is Aziz Ansari, the comedian who was accused of basically badgering a woman to do various sexual acts when she didn't really want to. She didn't say anything explicit, but she was kind of sending him non verbal cues or signals. Some people have debated this as this is a sexual assault. And it seems like with Me Too, we're moving from a legal world, which is very binary, mm-hmm. sexual assault or nothing, mm-hmm. to... Guilty, a, innocent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. To a spectrum that includes or tries to encompass power dynamics, feeling uncomfortable, verbal versus nonverbal cues, all wrapped up in the idea of consent. Can you tell me a bit about how this is evolving, how that conversation is evolving outside of the legal system with Me Too as kind of an accelerator to push it forward? Well, I think it's not evolving. I mean, I want it to, and that's certainly what I try to do in in the book, but I think we're not doing it enough. Like, I think still when we talk about consent, it's very limited to that kind of black and white this crosses the line into illegal and this doesn't. And, you know, it's no means no. That's all you need to know about consent. And one of my favorite chapters in the book is about the consent question, because what I found is that actually consent is very complicated. We talk about it as purely a verbal transaction, but people don't negotiate sex that way. They do it through body language. And uh, yet that's how we talk to teenagers about it. That's how we talk to university students. It's purely, you know, make sure she says yes. And, uh, you know, I interviewed university students and they're all like, they could all rhyme off the legal definition of consent perfectly. But when it actually came to their own sex lives, they said, oh, they would never do that. And what I found, you know, there's a ton of research that shows that people are not good at reading body language. There's research that shows that the brain sees what the brain wants to see. There's research that shows that men are more likely to view a situation as sexual than women. There is research that shows that in 
polls of, of university students, one of the ways that the most common ways that they indicate that they are willing to have sex with someone is by doing nothing, by letting their clothes be taken off. And I think that this all just kind of creates this perfect storm, especially when you douse it all in alcohol, where there could be confusion. And I don't want to suggest that one, that that is that sexual assault is always limited to confusion because that's not it. There's sexual assault absolutely where it's about power uh, and a variety of other things. And there are also, and then there have studies that shown this, that some perpetrators actually are aware of the confusion and they exploit it. So I'm not talking about those cases, but I think that this fits into a broader issue of consent can be very gray and we want to talk about it in black and white and we're not having that conversation because it's hard because it's hard to say maybe there is maybe this isn't so simple and because it sounds like you're making excuses for people who you know want to go out and commit harm and that's not what it's about but if we don't have that conversation it's not going to get better and it feels like so much of the the progress that people are trying to make around this is to get away from well, I thought she was giving me signals, right. I, you know, and I, or she led me on and therefore I did this. So how do we acknowledge that complexity while not sliding back into the world of uh, kind of un, unexpressed consent? Yeah, I think so much of it is just like, don't let yourself get caught up in the distractions. You can say, Consent is difficult. And if someone's like, oh, then you're giving an excuse to people. It's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying consent is difficult. And it's the same thing with like this whole movement, Me Too, I think has been unfortunately co-opted into this situation where you either have to say, I believe survivors all the time, 100% of the time, or there's a war on men. It's, it, it's like, why do we have to fit into those two things or that's it where i you know it's perfectly reasonable i i think for someone to be able to say i absolutely think that someone has a right to confront their accuser to speak up to be heard to have their claim treated seriously to be investigated properly i also think someone who's been accused of wrongdoing has a right to defend themselves they have a right to due process those aren't controversial thoughts you can think both things at the same time and still be very supportive of me too and that's what again like an example of it's a false fight i guess for so many of these things that we're getting sucked into because of the broader culture war and i'm i'm really pleading for one for people to ignore those distractions and be okay having the, the kind of more messy conversations, even though they might not fit nicely into a bow of your, your current ideological thinking. And also to give space to people if they say the wrong thing or step in it a little bit and work through things, because that's ultimately what we need right now. There is no perfect solution to a lot of these difficult questions. One of the things you explore in a fair amount of depth are some of the challenges around prosecuting sexual assault, the, mm -hmm. you know, the challenges of going back into the justice system where in the end it is a binary decision of guilty or not guilty. Can you talk a bit about the neurobiology of trauma and what the science of memory is teaching us about the experience of sexual assault victims? 
Yeah, and this was just such a really important area to get into because, again, going back to what I was finding when I was looking at those police investigations, why were so many of them done so poorly? Police are not bad people. When I was interviewing police officers, I mean, some might be, as, as some people are bad, but for the most part, when I was interviewing police officers, it seemed to just be that in these cases, especially when they were kind of gray, where they were going to be hard to prosecute. It's, you know, maybe there's a complainant who was really drunk at the time and she doesn't remember a lot of the details and they're just not really sure what to make of it. Or, you know, you're hearing a story. I, I looked at one case where a woman alleged that she was raped by a friend of a colleague and there were people right outside the room and the office and then she stayed in the room afterwards and the officer like couldn't like I don't understand like why didn't you call for help like why didn't you run out why didn't you tell people right after that's where understanding the biological changes in the body when you're in a period of intense fear is so important because what's now called the kind of the neurobiology of trauma it provides scientific explanations for seemingly illogical behavior and what we know now and what we can see through research and brain scans and clinical studies is when a person is truly scared for their life, there are changes that happen in the brain and the body. And some of that can be they're processing memories differently than they would be in a normal, calm state. There's scans that show the part of your brain that controls speech can go offline if you're truly terrified. It also can come into this, you know, like the fight or flight that we all talk about. There's also freeze response. And then there's also this idea of how women and men are socialized from a time that they're very young to behave. Women are socialized to be agreeable, people pleasers. So if you're feeling intensely scared for your life and your body is going into a protect itself response, do what you can to get out of this situation, you may rely on these habits that you have of in the past how you've gotten through situations where you, you know, you're getting into the agreeable, like, I'm just going to try to smile and nod and get through this. So it's very complex. And what I was finding is that if police didn't have an understanding of the neurobiology of trauma, they might hear someone say like, I don't know why I didn't say anything. I don't know why I didn't fight back. And that just doesn't seem to make sense until you understand the changes that are happening in the body. We talk about Me Too and sexual assault almost interchangeably in some ways, but me Too is an umbrella for a much larger set of issues involving sexism and discrimination and harassment. Do you see progress being made on all fronts or is it a step forward here and then a step forward somewhere else and then a step back you know, in other places? Yeah, man, isn't that the question? There's obviously progress in that we're having this conversation now and we weren't even a couple of years ago and that's great. But I do think there's not been a lot of movement you are seeing greater polarization around these issues. It has become very, it, it's totally been co-opted by the, the broader culture wars and, and politics. There's been a lot of reporting on, on men, particularly in, you know, kind of the business sector saying, well, I'm afraid of being accused of or doing something. So I'm just going to pull back from relationships with female coworkers. I'm going to pull back from mentoring opportunities. I'm going to, you know, not take on female clients or have the door shut in a meeting, which is, that, that doesn't help women get to equity in the workforce. Uh, you're seeing the rate of reporting of sexual harassment and sexual assault go up 
which is good because it doesn't mean that there's more of it happening. It just means more of it is being reported. So that's good, but you're not seeing charge rates go up necessarily. I think the biggest thing is this backlash that's happened. That's the most concerning thing. Like I was talking about earlier is it seems like everyone's being told to pick a side. And there's all of these really important issues like the does someone deserve a second chance if they've done something wrong that have becomes third rail issue of Me Too, like false accusations and due process, redemption, how do you change someone's mind, the generational gap that's we're seeing even among women where they can have totally different takes on this. And those are all you know individual chapters in the book that I'm trying to unpack all of these issues. I think if you poll to the country, are you pro-rape? pro-sexual harassment, people would say no. Almost everyone would say no. Dear God, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think we can feel reasonably confident. Yeah, but it's where we differ is what crosses the line. And there is no hard and fast rule. We need to talk this out. There's, there's a poll of the workforce that was done of millennial men. And it said it's, it was something like one in four or one in five thought it would be okay for you to give a, a colleague an uninvited shoulder rub or to have porn at work or for a boss to ke- kiss an employee's cheek. Like, this is to me obviously problematic behavior. And it's men my own age. This is not, you know, like 60 something guys from, you know, the Mad Men era or something. Why is that? Why is that still a pervasive thought? even in younger generations. So that's what we need to sort out. And and we need to be okay with having those complicated talks. What do you think is the evolution of Me Too as a movement, as a kind of an area of social momentum? Is there an evolution to it? Is there a successor to it? I mean, you mentioned earlier, like, what is Me Too? And Me Too very much started as a way for people to highlight sexual violence that they've experienced and then kind of extending to to broader sexual harassment. And now it's kind of, in some areas, it, for obvious reasons, turned into a conversation about sexism in general and equality and equal pay for equal work, women in, you know, elected office, positions of power just broader the role of the genders in in society. And I think we've also seen a broader awakening to some of these issues outside of, of sexual violence and sexual harassment, to just talk about rights in general and equity rights and the rights of transgendered people and, and non-binary people and understanding or starting to understand the nuances of how these all play out and how, you know, you can't talk about Me Too and women without looking at it from an intersectional perspective and understanding that as great as Me Too may be for certain women, there's no question that racialized women and women who work in precarious work, low-income jobs, are immensely vulnerable and not being heard in this movement. And why is that? So that's a lot that I've just laid out there other than (laughs) I think it's a lot like in the last couple of years that, you know, we are suddenly kind of all taking, I would like to think, understanding that there is a world outside of our own little silo 
And if we really want to be better people and more empathetic people and have a better world, we need to be okay kind of stepping into areas that maybe we're not comfortable talking about because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. But this all kind of fits into my my broader thesis, I guess, if you will, of like nothing's going to change if we don't try. And we might make mistakes along the way. And, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and, and seek out people who are who have, you know, really important stories that can help us understand. I think to a point that you made earlier, that it be done with a certain element of forgiveness, that there is, there are tricky waters to navigate. You're not always going to have exactly the right word choice. You're not always going to be able to frame it in exactly the right way, but you're coming into it with intent yeah. to try and make a difference and make things better. And in fact, I can almost say like, absolutely, we, you probably won't have the right things to say because if you did have the right things to say, you would already know it or you've memorized a script and that's not really helping you either. So, I mean, that is the mess of this situation that we're in and also the beauty of it. Your first book, Crazy Town came out of your reporting of the endless string of scandals and crises and revelations that made up Rob Ford's time as mayor of Toronto. Did you know as you were writing that a book would come out of that series? No, not at all. I never in a million years thought that. I got an email from Martha Webb, who is now my my, my literary agent, asking if I'd ever considered writing a book. And we met at a coffee shop and it just seems like, oh my God, I, I was just so focused on the kind of the newspaper reporting. And then it was, it all happened very fast. And it was, can you get us a manuscript in three months? And at the time I didn't have children or <laughs> I wasn't, you know, with anyone. And I think I had some dogs to take care of and they were neglected for three months while I, <laughs> I so, wrote that. <laughs> so having done one book, did you get partway into the Unfounded series or did you get to the end of it and kind of look at it as a whole and say, hey, I'd better start thinking about the book. I should probably save that piece of paper. Yeah, I'd love to say yes, but the answer is no, because <laughs> I mean, again, like when I was working on Unfounded, I really like put so much into that investigation. It ran you know, every day in the paper for a month and a half, there was an unfounded story in the paper. The series itself ran right through for an entire year. There was so much reporting in it that I, I didn't think, okay, this is going to be a book because it was all in the paper. But then Me Too happened. And then it added a layer that couldn't be explored because I was very narrowly focused on police and the justice system. And then a social movement and then got a, wrapped around it. Yes, and it, but it, they were the same issues. Mm -hmm. That was what was interesting. And I wanted to take what I'd learned doing Unfounded and apply it to me too. So there's very little of Unfounded in the book, except that I come back to it every now and then as kind of like, this is where I started thinking about this or Sometimes when you, I think the strength of Unfounded is it took something that people thought to be true, oh, the justice system doesn't give sexual assault complainants a fair shake, and provided empirical data that shows that that gut feeling was correct. So there are useful reasons for bringing it up, but no, I was not thinking initially that I should be saving stuff. <laughs> and were there any things where, as you were then going through the writing of the book, you're like, wow, I could have made this so much easier on myself if I'd just done this earlier. <laughs> a million times, yes. Well, and it was funny though, because when I when I did start thinking about this as a book, I was like, okay, I kind of know what I want to say, but where do you even start to wrap your brain around this? And that's where, again, I just went back to, 
I guess I've got to read a lot of stuff. To string all these different things, it's the, you know, it's the criminal justice system, but then it's the scientific research, it's the sociological research, it's looking at different generations, it's looking at stats, it's trying to, who are the people that I want to speak to? Like I made a list, like I'm going to, I want to try to talk to Steve Pakin, the TVO host who was accused of sexual misconduct and ultimately cleared. But what was that experience like for him? Or Justice Robin Camp, the former judge who resigned after he said he asked a sexual assault complainant why she didn't just keep her knees shut if she didn't want to be penetrated. And he'd had an evolution of thought and kind of a, I don't know, for lack of a better term, I guess a come to Jesus moment. And how did he get there? So that was kind of fun of planning out the book because there was nothing to work from like with the Rob Ford story. You talk about needing to start reading and start Mm -hmm. digging into the material around it. What were some of the books that were on your bookshelf or on your desk as you were starting to put together Had It Coming? I read Masula, which was Crack Hours. Yeah, yeah. Crack Hours book on, um, not dissimilar from Unfounded, but a, a, you know, a sexual assault case accusation trial, how that, how that played out, kind of getting into the rape myths and stereotypes of how that investigation was derailed. The Body Keeps the Score was an early book that I read with, by Bessel van der Kolk. He's a researcher in, in Boston, very premier in the front of kind of like the neurobiology of trauma and and the brain. And it's an amazing book on how trauma impacts victim behavior and their ability to recount afterwards. And then the big one that I kept coming back to over and over again in my reporting that so many of the books that I read referred to was Against Our Will by Susan Brown Miller, first published in 1975. It was the first book on rape and until, you know, the first big book on rape. And until Against Our Will, women were not talking about sexual violence as something that's mainstream. This was not out in the open, and it's hard to imagine that being the case, but it it was. When you started to look at writing books, at making that transition, you know, temporary or not, from day-to-day journalist to someone who's working in that longer form of a book, who were the examples that you were pulling from? What were the books that you were looking at to get your head around that form? There's so many. I guess I'll, I'll highlight, you know, Angler by Barton Gelman. I remember reading that it's a profile of Dick Cheney. And I read that years ago and before Crazy Town. And it was so powerful to me because it was, you know, largely through sourcing, right? And it's a book about, like, the person who was really in power during the Bush presidency and, and what that actually looked like in the White House and in day-to-day operations and and how he was kind of pulling those levers of power. And it asked the reader to trust the writer so much because so much of it was based on anonymous sourcing. But the back, the footnotes are what I remember the most because they're meticulous. They're like met with person at this time, you know, on this day and and highlighted what he knew and how he knew it. And it was just so compelling, I I thought. And I use that in Crazy Town, but also in my general reporting of there is, and this is, I think, a new trend in journalism, frankly. It's you want to have impeccable sources. You also want to be really upfront with readers what you don't know and the limitations of your sourcing. It's all about transparency. And I think that that book I've always remembered as, as just being this wonderful example. The other book that I've read in the last year or so 
that really stuck with me was Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the most amazing narrative nonfiction. This, it's basically a true crime story that this First Nations reserve in the States that has very wealthy because it's on oil land and how every member was assigned like a white guardian. They couldn't withdraw their money unless they had a white person sign off on it. And then they started dying and they were being murdered. And who's killing them? It's the most crazy story. It's so beautifully written, impeccably researched. And like one day, if I could ever even try to do something like that, would be amazing. <laughs> and you're one of the many people who've, who've come onto this podcast who call out Stephen King's on writing as a resource that they draw from. What did you pull from Stephen King? On Writing is a book I reread every couple of years. What I love about Stephen King in general, but also on writing, is there's no secret. It's like you just got to sit down and do it and don't get, I don't know, get over yourself, I guess. He, he basically, I think he has this line in it that's something like he knows he's never, he's never, he's not like Hemingway or, or like he, he's never going to reach that, but he's good, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I tell journalism students all the time is you can feel paralyzed like I am not... I don't have the like the royal jelly here or the brilliance only you know spectacularly brilliant people can ever write and that's not true it's a lot of it's just getting down and doing it not being pretentious write the way like write the way you talk I think he writes about you know like a lot of his ideas are what would happen if a kid had psychic abilities in a haunted hotel and then let the story tell itself just give it a try. Start writing. And I think that that is really liberating. To, it's not about spending eight months plotting out something. I mean, there are people that do that and it works for them. For me, it doesn't. But I really love how unpretentious he is about writing while also demanding good writing. But yeah, just like take a breath, sit down. You can do it. You're never going to finish it if you don't start. And he's always, to me, seemed like the, in word and deed, the personification of don't let the great be the enemy of the good. Yes, yes. And yet that has allowed him to become great. The best. Yeah. Yes. So let's go all the way back to the beginning and tell me about the formative books of your childhood. <laughs> well, this is a question I think about a lot right now because I have two little girls yes. and I can't wait for them. I just like from the day that they were born and one's only three months, so th th that wasn't long ago for the one, but... I'm so excited to sit and read with them. I mean, my toddler is so obsessed with books and I'm never more proud than when she's like, mommy, books, I want to read books. But the books of my childhood, I mean, Narnia, I have such a clear vision of, or memory of me and my sister sitting with my mom reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I loved Roald Dahl. I loved Matilda and the witches and the twits, partly because the stories are so amazing, but also the illustrations by Quentin Blake. I love them. I still have them all. The Harry Potter books I, I came to in kind of around, I'd say, grade seven or eight for me. And what was fun is it really made me hold on to my childhood like that much longer. I remember being in university and home for the summer and one of the final Harry Potter books was coming out around that time. And I took my sister and her friends to the bar and then drove over to the bookkeeper in Sarnia, where I'm from, and lined up 
at midnight to get the book and then sat outside the bar while they were and drove them home so I could start reading it. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of your books from your childhood that you talk about are fiction, are invented landscapes, are other worlds. Everything that you're talking about in your adult life is nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> is, have you left fiction behind or is it still in there somewhere? I'm in a book club and partly, like so many people, partly it was because my girlfriends and I, a, a lot of them are journalists or former journalists, and we all realized like we all we do is read nonfiction or the newspapers every day and, and we weren't making time to force ourselves to read fiction, which is so important. And so we try to just pick fiction in this book club. So what did I read last? Bunny by Mona Awad, I think. I loved that book. It was hilarious and funny. And of course, I read The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, like every other human being in this world. Yes. But it's fiction is so great because I do love, you know, different universes. I can I have an infinite appetite for apocalypse stories. I don't know what that says about me, the Cronin series. I like love all the The passage and the Yes, the pet like if there's vampires and zombies and I'm here for it for sure. Excellent. Robin Doolittle, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Robin Doolittle's latest book, Had It Coming, What's Fair in the Age of Me Too, is published by Penguin Random House Canada and available at www.kobo.com. You can get links to all the books mentioned in this episode and find previous episodes as well at www.kobo.com conversation. Be sure to give us a rating and a review so people can find out how great this is and check out our sibling podcast, Kobo Writing Life, all about the nuts and bolts of making it as an independent author. Thank you for listening. <laughs>